Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Baldwin-Wallace University in Cleveland is out with its Great Lakes poll. It looks at how Ohioans and those in three other states feel about the upcoming presidential race. Ohio Northern University in Northwest Ohio is also involved in the poll, and I'll talk to a political science professor from there in a moment. Courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light has a roundtable discussion about various political issues. And Daniel Barnett wraps up the hour talking to U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams about smoking. First up on Columbus Perspective, he's been with us before. Joining me on the phone is Professor of Political Science, Robert Alexander. He is with Ohio Northern University in Ada. How are you? I'm doing great, Dave. Good to be back. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about a poll that came out of uh, Baldwin-Wallace in uh, Cleveland, but Ohio Northern was also involved in, right? This has been a fantastic collaboration between academic partners, uh, between my colleagues there at Baldwin-Wallace here at Ohio Northern and Oakland University in Michigan. Uh, There's several uh, of our colleagues that uh, have, have known each other for a few years now, and, uh, and we certainly couldn't have done any of this with, without the other. And uh, we were very thankful to Baldwin Wallace for um, kind of organizing the poll and, and, and getting it off the ground. So Lauren Copeland over there and, and Dr. Terry Towner at Oakland uh, have just done just a great job for us. This must be really fun and stimulating to be involved in something like this. It's it's the kind of thing that you, you typically see at the big you know Ohio states of the world go go bucks. Uh, you don't <laughs> typically see it at um, more of the teaching institutions like us. And so it is. It's it's truly fascinating. It is nice to be part of the conversation to to, to have that public engagement. Um, it, you can bring these things into the classroom. It's it's really interesting. Just yesterday, I had students on their phones and they're they're asking me questions because their parents are reading articles about the poll that that you helped that you help design, that you're helping analyze. And they're like, my mom wants to know this about Trump or my mom wants to know this about the Electoral College. So it's uh, it's, it's really good to, to certainly be in the arena. And this was a poll of people in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin covering a number of political topics. And right off the bat, the first thing that kind of sticks out is that the president doesn't seem to have those four states wrapped up as though some people might have thought. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, these four states in particular, I mean, obviously, geographically, they're, they're, they're close to one another, but they're super important uh, to, to winning the presidency. All four of these states went for Barack Obama in 2008 and in 2012, and all four of these same states were, were flipped over to Donald Trump in 2016. And in fact, in, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and Pennsylvania, he won each of those states by less than 1%. Uh, in in the general election. So they were very, very close. Ohio was a bit of a surprise. He he won by 8% there. And so these are going to be critical to his success in winning a second term. And uh, again, it's it's been fantastic to be able to collaborate with these other institutions to examine uh, what voters are thinking in these states. And, and, And one of the big findings is that Donald Trump has a lot of work to do uh, in order to woo back those voters in these states, um, he, uh, he he is in, in kind of significant trouble in Michigan. Uh, we found 49 percent of respondents said that they certainly weren't going to vote for Trump in this in, in, in 2020. That's not a good place to start from. And we saw pluralities in each of the states that would prefer an unnamed Democratic candidate 
over Trump. Uh, I mean, a lot can change. There's there's still a significant number of people that um, haven't made up their mind yet. They're still shopping around. But even among those, we asked them, well, who, who would you lean toward? And even among those uh, uh, voters, they, they lean toward uh, an unnamed Democrat over over Trump. The numbers show uh, in Ohio, uh, an unnamed Democrat winning over Trump, 44 to 39 percent, a lot of undecided still. Pennsylvania, razor thin, just three-tenths of a point different between a Dem and Trump. Michigan, 47 to 34 percent for a Dem, and same thing in Wisconsin. It's uh, it's fascinating because even when you look break it down to, to genders, uh, Trump was leading among men in Ohio, but not by much, and, and that seems dramatically different than what it was four years ago. Well, he's performed very well uh, among men in uh, in most public opinion polls. Uh, we saw that uh, when we look at exit polls in 2016, that he performed very well uh, amongst men. Um, but he has really struggled with women, and, and that is uh, certainly uh, revealing in, in these public opinion polls here in Ohio as well. And, and I'd also kind of point out that it's been fascinating to see how positive people's views are of the economy, mm-hmm. right? So most uh, Americans across the country and even in these battleground states uh, have pretty optimistic views of the economy, perhaps as, as optimistic as they've been in a couple of decades. But that has not translated into higher approval rating for Donald Trump. I think it's really keeping him afloat more so than, than kind of, you know, bumping him up in uh, in favorability. He he actually came in in November of 2016 with like 36 percent of favorability rating. He's managed throughout his presidency to be around 42 percent favorability rating in spite of a really strong economy. Usually with numbers like that, you could coast to a second term uh, re-election. Re- uh, but uh, he, he has really struggled in wooing additional voters. Um, I think uh, among the things that we found is the divisiveness. Um, he has a lot of bombast, and, and that's who he is, and, and that's how he kind of made his mark, certainly, as a reality TV uh, character. And uh, and certainly people like that in, in, in his base, uh, but it, it really has turned out turned off women and, and independents. And so those are some things that, that we're keeping our eye on as the campaign uh, continues. Talking with Robert Alexander, he's a political science professor at Ohio Northern University. In addition to people having... Uh, pretty good vibes about the economy they also consider it the number one issue by far economy at 31 percent health care 22 percent and security issues also 22 percent yeah those are those are the things that that most uh, americans are care about and certainly that's true in these battleground states too uh, the economy is, like I said, one of the, the best things that Trump should be running on. You, you know, he, he talks about it a lot, uh, as he should. Uh, but he has, you know, health care and, and, and foreign policy are those other kind of two really important issues. And, uh, and he's really dragging with health care. Uh, a, a lot of uh, folks in the Great Lakes do not give him very high um, rankings on his handling of health care. I think there's a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, and, and the same is also true on foreign affairs. Uh, we actually started this poll just after the strike on uh, General Soleimani in Iran. And so we asked some questions about that. Uh, we're, we're, we're pretty early on in, in that uh, process. And, and one of the things we found was that pluralities uh, agreed uh, that this was a good thing. But at the same time, they didn't think that it made us any more safe. 
And uh, ultimately, what you want is is that safety and security. Uh, respondents here in these battlegrounds do not feel safer under a Trump administration, and uh, they, they believe that America is less respected as a result of the Trump administration, at least from the poll that we that we just conducted. His bombastic nature, which you touched on, is unbelievably polarizing. I mean, for some people, that is the reason why they vote for him. And for other people, that's the reason why they vote against him. A hundred percent. You know, his supporters say, that's my president. They, they like that. They like that fight that he has. They like that he um, will say what, whatever he wants to say, that he's unconventional. And for for a lot of other Americans, uh, you know, they don't. And, and this is especially true among independents. I mean, Democrats, it's, it's interesting. You find that Republicans are uniquely um, disciplined in their support of Donald Trump. He has the highest Republican approval rating since Eisenhower. It's, it's, wow. it's incredible. But at the same time, he's got <laughs> uniquely uh, disciplined numbers of Democrats that, that really do not like him. So it's it's they're like polar opposites. Now, when you look at the independents, however, they do not like that polarizing politics. They do not like they 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 found that uh, we found that you know they they thought that Democrats have moved too far to the left, that Republicans are moving too far to the right. You know, they they want a little bit uh, perhaps less drama in our politics. You know, a year ago we had a government shutdown that lasted throughout the entire uh, month of January, and of course, right now we're in the midst of an impeachment to evaluate whether or not we should remove the president of the United States. These are unique times, and I think that there's a lot of respondents in these polls that are, they like the economy, they, they want to keep it moving, but at the same time, you know, they, I think they would like Trump to probably put his phone down uh, and get out of his own way. And, and if, I were, if I were advising him, I would, and, you know, his advisors are not saying this, they're saying let Trump be Trump, but if I were advising him, I'd say, you know, be a little bit more quiet. Uh, let let the record speak for it on the economy um, rather than uh, via tweet. Uh, if I were on the Democrat side, I would say make this election all about Donald Trump, all about Donald Trump all the time. Let him be the star player in, in your campaign. Don't let it be about your own policies. And uh, and, and, and that that would be the, the free advice I would be giving out um, to to these various candidacies. Well, in this Great Lakes survey that you're involved in with uh, Ohio Northern, along with uh, Baldwin Wallace and Oakland University, what do you make of uh, the response that 34 percent believe that strongly believe that the Democratic Party has moved too far left and 54 percent believe at least uh, strongly or somewhat? And then 47 percent believe strongly or somewhat that the GOP has moved too far to the right. Well, it actually reflects. Uh, the, the the choices that we have as Americans. There's been a lot of research in the political science literature on polarization over the last 20 years, and among the things that we have found is, is kind of some you know competing theories on this. One is that we are indeed becoming more polarized, but I, I actually subscribe to the view that we have more polarized choices. So the choices that we have to, to choose from as our candidates are are producing more polarized policies. Uh, where we are a, a lot less um, 
committed to a lot of issues that, that are out there. The issue of abortion, for instance, if you if you look at it on on you know the kind of uh, advertising or the television um, world that you would find that it's either you're for it or against it, and there's nothing in between. The reality is for for most Americans, they they are somewhere in between. It depends on the situation. Are we talking about rape? Are we talking about incest? Are we talking about the health of the mother? How far along are we? All of those kinds of issues, uh, contingencies. Um, actually change how people view that particular issue. But you don't get that with the choices that we have as our politicians. And so that may translate into a more polarized electorate. Uh, and I think that uh, the poll that we're finding is saying that, you know, they're, they're kind of tired of that. They, they, they want a little bit of normalcy, a little bit of sanity, and they want uh, folks to work together on, on some, some pretty big issues. Talking with uh, Robert Alexander, he's an Ohio Northern University political science professor, also the author of a book called Representation and the Electoral College, which was published last year. The Electoral College, that's your baby, and, and that was also involved in the poll. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we did uh, uh, among my colleagues is we all kind of took certain areas and said, hey, let's go find out about that. So my, my colleague there at uh, at, at uh, Oakland, she's big on social media. And so we asked a, a number of questions there. Um, my bailiwick is indeed the Electoral College. And so we asked some questions and, and had some truly fascinating results that I, I that were completely unexpected. Uh, in, in particular, we, we found that, uh, you know, uh, the large majorities, uh, 61 to 62 percent um, of respondents in these states, these battleground states, have concerns that the popular vote winner uh, might not win the Electoral College, which, of course, we had in 2000 with George W. Bush and, and in the most recent election in 2016. We also found, and this, again, was very surprising, that the majority of respondents support a, uh, an amendment for a popular vote. They would rather choose uh, our leaders through a popular vote and ditch the Electoral College. Again, that was very surprising. The other thing that was <laughs> truly remarkable, these are swing states. You know, we just pointed this out. Uh, they, they flipped from Obama to Trump. There were, you know, three of the four within 1% margin. And... 59 to 61% of respondents in these states, it's hard to get that many people to agree on almost anything, right? <laughs> Believed that uh, swing states have too much say in presidential election. So huh. they're willing to get rid of the one thing that makes them so valuable in a presidential election. That was truly fascinating. And one more nugget that I thought was uh, uh, really interesting, and I think it speaks to not only the Electoral College, uh, but it also speaks to, I think, social media. And, and perhaps low information voters is that uh, we found 20 to 27 percent of all respondents believe that Donald Trump won the popular vote in 2016. And when you look at just Republicans, that number jumps to 40 to 45 percent wow. of Republicans believe that Donald Trump won the won the popular vote in 2016 when, of course, he lost it by nearly three million votes. It sure is interesting. And, and it adds a lot of fuel to the fire when you think that. If you took, and it wouldn't be fair to do this, but I'm just saying that if you took New York and California out of the election, mm -hmm. that entire huge span of the U.S., Trump is an easy winner for the other states in between. Right. It, you know, somebody I was at a I was in an event a couple of years ago talking about the Electoral College and somebody brought up that point. They were very specific about even the counties. You know, if you well, if you take Los Angeles County and you take, you know, this borough and this borough in New York, Trump wins the, the popular vote. And I said, well, 
Okay, probably did, right? Uh, but then if you take Alabama, just the state of Alabama out of the mix, you would have Hillary, those same, you know, California and, and, and New York, and then you took Alabama, Hillary Clinton would win in a very close election. <laughs> you know, when we start cherry picking where the can, you know, where we want to take the votes from, we can find all kinds of different results. The, the fact of the matter is those voters in Alabama are still Americans. They're still voters. The same is true in California and in New York. Actually, in, in California in 2016, there wasn't a Republican running for the Senate. There was actually two Democrats running for the Senate spot in California, which probably increased voter turnout in California. Uh, and the reality is not neither candidate after the conventions stepped foot in California to campaign, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, or, tex, or Texas is another one. Georgia, they, they barely spent any time there. There's a lot of Democrats and Republicans in, in all of those states. Heck, you know, if we're looking at California, you know, they've had a number of Republican governors. They've had a there's their their members of Congress have traditionally been dominated by um, Republicans. The same is true of New York. Um, So kind of thinking about this from the perspective of, you know, taking these voters out or adding these voters really kind of speaks to to, I think, some of the complexity of our process. And I think that's another reason why. We did find some support for kind of moving to a popular vote as the Electoral College is 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 um, it's muddy. It's not easy to understand. There's not one reason for the Electoral College. People mm-hmm. talk about it being about, you know, protecting less populated states and that kind of thing. But the reality is it's those swing states to get all the love. They're not going to the, the less populated states. They're not necessarily going to the most populated states. It's these swing states. That's where the campaigning is happening. And likely the promises are being made. Most of us are not sitting back and saying, you know, I'm a Californian or an Ohioan or we're we're Democrats or Republicans. We're liberal. We're conservative. We think of each other, you know, our our beliefs about politics from from that perspective, not from the perspective of where where you are located at that moment. And I think that that's one of the the arguments that that we don't make too, too often is that, you know, our politics are more determined by our partisanship than they are our statehood. But there is the argument that just under the right circumstances, Montana, because of, you know, the three or four electoral votes or whatever it has, is Mm -hmm. monumentally important. Whereas you'd never see a candidate go to Billings to, you know, to campaign. But if but if somehow they thought those I need those three electoral votes, I've got to go to Billings. Well, there's a, a couple of things uh, going on with that, right? So one is that, you know, Maine recognized this, Nebraska recognized this. They said, you know, we're not getting any any attention whatsoever. So they moved from a, a winner-take-all uh, feature where if you win the state by one vote, you get all of that state's electoral college votes. And most people don't understand how that process works. Um, and in, in fact, in the, our poll, the people, you know, uh, most most voters said we'd like to, to move to a more proportional scheme. Uh, Maine and Nebraska, if you win a congressional district, you get that electoral vote. So Donald Trump was traveling to to uh, the second congressional district in Maine, and he won it in 2016. Barack Obama won a congressional district in Nebraska back in 2008. So that's one way to make billings important, right, is to kind of do that proportional scheme. But the the problem with that is that could invite a lot of third parties. It could make it hard to um, um, get a get a candidate that is able to muster a strong plurality or certainly a majority of the vote across the country or even an electoral college victory. So there's there's some issues with that. 
if you move to a popular vote, I think the argument is campaigns would have to go wherever their votes are. And right now, Republicans aren't going to Montana at all. If we had a true national popular vote, the argument would be that Republicans would would go to the rural areas. They'd go to certain suburbs. Democrats would go to urban areas, but they'd also be going to suburbs and they would be hitting some rural areas as well that, you know, Democrats and Republicans exist throughout the country. And in fact, there there might be a good argument to be made to say, you know, you, you, you might go advertise in Billings because the, the advertising dollar, you can get a lot more for it than you could in that Los Angeles market. So they're going to be efficient about how they would go about doing that. Um, but I think that's also one of the big questions is that nobody is totally sure what would happen under a national popular vote um, process. Talking with Robert Alexander, he's a political science professor at Ohio Northern University. Another aspect is, you know, California has 40 million people. North Dakota has 760,000. They're both represented by two U.S. senators. Yeah, this is uh, one of the reasons why that that um, formula really overrepresents each electoral vote um, between, you know, Montana or North Dakota and California or Texas. So that one electoral vote in California might be representing 800, 900,000 people, where that one electoral vote in Montana might be representing 200,000 people. So you get more bang for your buck in Montana than you do in <laughs> California. And that's 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 the Senate. Then, that you know, that's part of the Constitution. And that's unlikely to change uh, without an amendment. Um for a popular vote. Um, so that's certainly part of it. But again, you know, the, those states that are competitive are the states that, that truly matter in a presidential contest. So it's almost like, you know, these, these you know, six or seven states that will get all of the attention as we kind of wind into the, um, the, the home stretch here in the next few months. Uh, those are the ones that are, that are truly advantaged by the Electoral College, uh, not necessarily less populated states and certainly not the most populated states unless they are they're tightly contested. If they're a tightly contested state, then you're going to get attention. Uh, you will probably get some campaign promises, um, but uh, and you'll certainly get visits. But but uh, it, unless you're competitive, you, you get no campaign um, action whatsoever. Ohio seems to be turning more red uh, with an eight-point win by President Trump in uh, 2016. But this poll that you're that we're talking about makes it sound like Ohio is back to being a battleground state. Yeah, so there's been a lot of um, epitaphs written about Ohio's uh, role as a, as a kingmaker in presidential politics after the 2016 election. I mean, you know, as I said, Barack Obama won the state two times, uh, and then Donald Trump just kind of, he blew Hillary Clinton out of the water here. Uh, and uh, and that's so a lot of people were saying, wow, you know, what's going on in Ohio? You, you take a look at our statewide offices. They're, they're dominated by Republicans. Uh, 2018 midterms were a great year for Democrats across the country. And yet in Ohio, only Sherrod Brown uh, was able to to win a statewide office as a Democrat. So, um, you know, there's been a lot written about that. We did a poll uh, here at Ohio Northern last um, spring, the Northern Poll. And uh, what we found was something very similar to what we're finding in this Great Lakes Poll, uh, which is that, uh, you know, that there there is still um, a, a lot to be said for Ohio being a battleground. Certainly, um, if Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket, I, again, I attribute uh, some of this to, to Trump himself as opposed to maybe the demographics of the state. 
if you if you look at Ohio, there's we are still very much uh, divided between Democrats and Republicans and independents, pretty evenly divided. Uh, it's about getting that turnout. Uh, turnout is is really what's going to matter uh, in, in any election, of course. But uh, uh, in Ohio right now, Donald Trump's uh, not um, performing at the level I think that he needs to perform at in order to 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 repeat an eight percent um, victory in uh, 2020. Robert Alexander, political science professor, Ohio Northern University. Uh, if folks want to, to check out this poll online and if they want more information about the book you've written about the Electoral College, Robert, how do they find out? If they want to take a look at it, um, Baldwin Wallace has a, uh, a nice link um, to it. You know, if you Google Great Lakes poll, it'll pop right up. Um, it's, it's making the rounds in a lot of media outlets. Uh, we were, you know, 538.com and Nate Silver is writing about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously these are the states that everybody wants to know a lot about. They want to see where, where folks are at uh, in the Democratic primary. And, and, and Joe Biden seemed to be doing pretty well. But also Mike Bloomberg was was pretty surprising uh, finding. But Google Great Lakes poll, you'll find that. Uh, you can find representation in the Electoral College on Amazon uh, or whatever is your, your favorite uh, uh, website there and um, you know really happy to continue uh, investigating these these phenomena okay it's good stuff again political science professor robert alexander with ohio northern university and ada in northwest ohio thanks so much for your time today i sure appreciate it always a pleasure dave Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you A, get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B, find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C, show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Scott. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Face the State. Welcome to another Sunday morning to talk politics and to talk public affairs. We are also happy to welcome a terrific group of guests this morning, including the State Auditor of Ohio. Keith Faber is here. He also served 18 years in the State House. The rest of our guests are teaching the next generation of young people, including three professors. Chanel Jones is back with us from Franklin University. She's program chair of public safety programs there. Dr. Suzanne Marilli is back as well. She is associate professor of political science at Capital University and from Cedarville University, the director of the Center for Political Studies there, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. Welcome all. It's good to have you here. Happy New Year. Haven't seen a few of you since last year. Auditor favorite, like to begin with you. You recently completed, you and your staff completed an audit of the Transportation Department. 
from this performance audit, you said ODOT maybe could possibly save millions by doing several things, reducing consultants, mm-hmm. avoiding vehicle leasing, and better data collection. Right. When do we find out if ODOT will take these recommendations and, and so-called run with it? Well, first of all, we were asked by the General Assembly as part of the gas tax increase mm-hmm. to perform a performance audit of ODOT. That's one of the things we do in the state auditor's office. And so statutorily, they're, they're required to implement our recommendations okay. unless they find that they're not in keeping with the public policy directive. So the governor would have to come in and say not to do that. Uh, from our perspective, uh, we've had a good working relationship with ODOT. We anticipate they're going to implement or try to implement all of our recommendations. The big takeaway from there, from, from my perspective was really three things. First, ODOT has a lot of data. They don't keep it, they don't use it very well, and they certainly aren't using it to manage. They need to get better at that. Uh, I give uh, Lieutenant Governor Husted and Governor DeWine's Innovate Ohio program uh, a lot of credit. If they can pull that together and figure out how to use that, it will be good not just in ODOT but across state government. The the second takeaway is, is that ODOT has a nasty habit of using consultants when they should be using their own people. This is something that now, after we've released the phase one part of the report, I'm hearing over and over from engineers and other across ODOT that they seem to be hiring people to do a lot of the inspections that the ODOT people should be doing okay. and would be handled better if ODOT did themselves. Our assessment is that could save upwards of $20 million. Uh, and the third takeaway was on a request that the legislature made with regard to leasing heavy equipment. We think that were they to do that leasing as requested, it would cost between 20 and $40 million more. Okay. So we think they ought to continue you to purchase those things that they're going to use through their usable life expectancy and, and not enter into leases. Let's broaden out. You were talking about data. We've got a lot of data from this week. We have got to talk about impeachment. We've got to talk about a debate. And let's begin now as we kind of broaden out. Let's talk about, well, how you feel about politics and issues out there. What we saw in the latest Quinnipiac poll that came out, 65 percent said President Trump should consult Congress if there is another military strike in Iran. 51% of the American public approved of the House impeachment. 25%. That's a number we put up here because Democrats and independents support Joe Biden. He is the leading vote getter, or I guess I should say support getter in this Quinnipiac poll. And then I think we had another one on health care. Yeah, health care being the most important issue on the minds of voters out there. Chanel, what did you take away from Quinnipiac from this poll this week? Well, obviously, we're, we're, we're divided among partisan mm-hmm. lines, right? You know, because there were several different polls, the impeachment, who supported it, who didn't. Obviously, you see Democrats primarily supporting the impeachment, Republicans not. Um, health care, a lot of people being in favor of the health care. Um, but then there was also part of the Quinnipiac poll was um, who supported uh, President Trump, you know, and uh, if we go to war. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was also divided among partisan lines with primarily Democrats saying, you know, they should consult Congress, Republicans saying, you know, he should do what he has to do. Mm-hmm. That's part of the presidential powers that he has. So we're divided. Sure. Uh, when you look at the big picture. And so it's, you know, how do we get everybody together reaching a happy medium mm-hmm. when it comes to some of these big key issues? That is going to be a tough thing to do in yes. the presidential election year. Mark, what do you think of this poll? It's good to see Congress maybe reasserting itself a little bit, even in the polling. You know, 65% saying they think the president should consult Congress. I think mm-hmm. it's a very positive thing. Uh, if you look at it historically, Congress has really vacated a good bit of their responsibilities, I think, over things like war making and other things that they ought to be doing more of. But even then, it was really heavily Republican and, and Democratic split. And so uh, the Republicans really weren't as interested in getting congressional consultation and it's too bad because we know four years, eight years ago, they'd have had a different approach to this. And right. So what we see is Donald Trump continues to really be the black hole 
of American politics. All these issues sort of go into how you view Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Suzanne? Yeah, well, uh, following up, I think they've said most of the more, most important things. Also, Donald Trump's still seen as very positive leader when it comes to the economy in that poll. I'll give a little contrast. The 538 group under Nate Silver's direction have decided to ask a question on comparing Trump to other Republican leaders, including um, Reagan, Pence, Palin, and George W. Bush. And this is a new survey they've been doing, and they find that, very interestingly, again, Republicans are very positive about Trump, rank him under Reagan. Mm -hmm. However, when you ask, and of course, Democrats put Trump at the bottom. Independents are interesting in this group. They also are putting Trump at the bottom. I found another fault line, too, and Auditor Mm -hmm. Faber, you can weigh in here. You know, uh, Republicans, conservatives talk about things like the economy and immigration, and then Democrats, Democrats and independents ranked climate change higher than the economy. That surprised me. Well, going back to the economy, uh, most Americans think the economy is doing pretty well, and most of them give President Trump a lot of the credit for keeping it there. Um, And from that perspective, when you talk about uh, party politics, uh, most Republicans think that the president is doing a pretty good job. Uh, And and frankly, you look at the numbers, he is. The lowest unemployment across every subset, uh, and and you look at what they're doing on the economy. Um, On other issues, you see some some fall off. But uh, one of the things I noticed that this Q poll was a national poll. Uh, uh, you know, I tend to look at things in Ohio. Sure, sure. Um, and, and the numbers mm-hmm. in Ohio, my, my suspicion is, and I haven't seen recent numbers, would be far better for the president. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's a perspective that, that we tend to look at. Nationally, you, you tend to see some things that are going to skew a national poll one way or another. So uh, these are the uh, academic experts that can talk more about that. But from my experience, having, having run a caucus, having run elections, and, and having run statewide, is you need to look at the, the crosstabs and you need to look at the mm-hmm. Subsets where you're at, and you were getting into a little of that. This election largely is going to come down to the independents and the people whose minds can be changed. There are people on both sides uh, who've already made up their mind. Yeah. Um, I'm going to vote. Will for, vote. They yeah, are ready. Uh, I'm going to vote for the. They are ready. Right. Yeah. It could be Joe Biden. It could be the man on the moon. We're going to mm-hmm. vote for the Democrat. We're not voting for Trump. And there are Republicans who are going to vote for no matter what. So you need to look at the ones in the middle, and that's where the discussion is going to be. And and the economy is going to be very important in that. Is my prediction. Yeah. Uh, Provided we don't go to war, provided we don't have some other issues. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we look forward, uh, it's going to be the, the question that you brought up, I think, is a very important question on a lot of people's minds. How to bring, bring the country together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's something that all of us are trying to look at. And, and I usually reference the state, uh, having served in the state legislature, didn't go to Congress, thank goodness. Um, and, and we look at the legislature from the state, and it generally works together pretty well. Um, it's about getting the job done. And that's the message that I think people want to see. Um, Congress is dysfunctional. Um, And you look at what's going on with impeachment. You look at what's been going on uh, from across the the spectrum. The key is how do we get things done and how do we get the job done for, I say, all Ohioans, but for all Americans. And that, I think, is starting to be reflected in the poll numbers. Part of my job is paying the bills and hitting a commercial. (laughs) Let me take a quick commercial break and the discussion continues in just a couple of minutes. We'll talk about your right to vote. Whether you want to or not, should the government automatically register you? And the debate stage, boy, it heated up on several fronts. A battle over foreign threats, honesty on the campaign trail, and some fighting words between friends. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. 
180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back, everyone. This week, State House Democrats introduced a bill to automatically register all Ohio high school students to vote once they turn 18, of course. So in essence, this would be registering to vote. It would be an opt-out instead of our current opt-in system. Dr. Suzanne Marilli is back. She is Associate Professor of Political Science at Capital University. Suzanne, why don't you start us off here? What do you think about this bill? I think that's a start. Yeah. I think we do need to make registration easier. The little concern I have is that going forward with anything that has to do with citizenship, there are lots of forms to fill out, passport forms, uh, other kinds of forms later on in life, uh, you know, when Medicare and Social Security and all that um, start cropping in, so and all the health forms you have to fill mm-hmm. out. So it's, u- it's useful to learn how to fill out a very particular kind of form. So okay. I think we lose something there. Chanel Jones is back with us from Franklin University. She's program chair of public safety programs there. So Same I want to take you all back to my <laughs> senior year in high school. Okay. And I remember Like sitting- three years ago. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. not a long time yeah, ago at like all. like two. No. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I was sitting in my political science class was like an AP political science course and they passed out voter registration uh, the little forms in the class and we all had to sign up for it and it was pretty antiquated right you get the form you fill it out (laughs) turn it back in and then I don't know what the our our teacher did with it but apparently I got registered to vote Um, so I think this is a more efficient more effective uh, more an economical way of getting people registered to vote it's easier to be opted in and then you can say oh right opt me out but uh it's, it's more difficult the other way around, and it'll save a ton of money. Not to mention that 18 other states and the District of Columbia have already done it, so we are just falling suit. And most of the states that have done it have seen um, increases in the number of people who register, but also the ver- voter turnout. So I think it, uh, it'll benefit everybody in the long run. You, you both have mentioned red tape. Also in this bill, it requires BMV to offer you the chance to register to vote with no new paperwork. By the way, no <laughs> new paperwork. We'll see if the state government can pull that off. From Cedar University, the director of the Center for Political Studies there, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. Mark, I saw you nodding your head over there. Yeah, I agree for the most part, but it doesn't really decrease the cost of voting. Cost registration certainly goes down because of this, but not necessarily voting itself. We have to make it a little bit simpler for people to vote, I think. Whether it's a holiday, whether it's polls open for 24 hours, whatever it might be, that's where you're really going to see, I think, increased turnout. This is good. Mm -hmm. Nothing to complain about necessarily. Uh, I'm also a little more concerned about what they're actually learning in those schools than just the registration process. Mm -hmm. That's going to affect what the actual vote could be, which is in the end more important. Just so happens we have the former Senate president here at the table. The state auditor of Ohio, Keith Faber, would you have gotten behind this bill? Uh, We would have discussed it. I don't know. You have to look at the nuances and see how it works because for a long time high school government teachers have been registering all the government classes. Sometimes when politicians say, though, we'll have to look at it, that's a nice way of saying no. Well, (laughs) look, to me me the issue, and and I've, I've given 
this speech hundreds of times, well, not hundreds, but a lot, uh, where I talk about the cores of citizenship, and voting is one of them. But the registration system is not just used for voting. It's used for jury selection. It's used for a whole lot of other things. And so I think you hit on something that's very important. We need to talk about in those civics classes and those government classes the cores of what it means to be an American. Uh, and, and part of that is, is being involved in your communities, helping others above yourself, voting, serving on juries, doing the things that are going to voice your opinion to what makes things better. And it can be as simple as being willing to show up to a school board meeting and saying, hey, we want College Credit Plus here in our school yeah. district. Or it can be as complicated as going out and running for office. Auditor Faber, you talked about people uh, showing up. There were a bunch of Democrats who showed up in Iowa just a few nights ago for a debate. Let's take a look at some of their comments. Anybody knows me knows that it's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. What did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? I disagreed. Bernie is my friend, and I am not here to try to fight with Bernie. This is a decency check on our government. I think we need to be candid with voters. I think we have to tell them what we're going to do and what it's going to cost. I would declare a state of emergency on day one on climate. Boy, they covered a whole lot of ground the other night. Chanel, why don't you start us off? Um, who scored? Maybe who had a rough night, if anybody. You know, I mean, a lot of people said with that debate starting off, by my count, it went about 27 minutes in the beginning on foreign policy, that that probably helped Joe Biden coming yeah. out of the gate. What were yeah. some of your thoughts? I definitely think, of course, you know, he is the front runner. It did help him. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been gaining ground, Bernie Sanders, but they have a, a debate. You know, honestly, if you think about this, I always wonder when we say who win and who's losing, when you got all these Democrats just debating each other, nobody really wins. Mm. Um, and so, you know, my, my, my whole idea about the debates is if we can move forward, center on a candidate who we're all going to rally around and support. You know, we go through all these different steps to identify that one person, but I just say it just divides everybody. And then when it's all said and done, we got to rally everybody back together again to, mm -hmm. you know, support. But we're remembering, oh, you said this, you said women right. can't win elections. And so, I mean, it's all divisive when you think about it. But I think, you know, there were a lot of different high points during that night, uh, things that people said. But I, I definitely think, you know, Joe Biden clearly, you know, was one of my front runners. Okay. Uh, what do you think, Mark, of this debate? I think on the whole, Donald Trump probably wins from this debate more than anyone huh? else, honestly. Uh, foreign policy actually helps the president since it's a major topic. As of right now, I think most Americans would say he's done a reasonably good job with the Iranian crisis. So I think that's probably good for the president. Uh, also, I think Joe Biden probably has helped to some degree as well. He's the front runner. He didn't do anything to really challenge that mm -hmm. status. But we're still looking at a Democratic Party that's pretty divided. Very much so. And so far, we haven't really seen what, how that division is going to play itself out. In Iowa, we still may not see it. Uh, it looks like there's going to be three or four people, probably similar kinds of outcomes there. This looks like a long campaign. Mm -hmm. Suzanne? I think that Joe Biden um, stayed above the fray and holds solid probably as a front runner, but perhaps with not enough of a lead to sustain or to gain some enormous lead. So I'm going to say the Democrats are not so much divided as undecided. Hmm. And like many of these, I'd be interested to know how many are doing a Vegas type of thing and putting $5, $5, $5, $5 and saying, let's do a sort of a wait and see and are waiting most, I mean, Iowa, New Hampshire, very small. 
and <clears throat> really even South Carolina, mm -hmm. even Super Tuesday, it's not that major. So um, I, I think we do need to wait for bigger states such as Ohio in March. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think the winner from, from what I saw of this was Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and, and, and candidly, um, there is a divide within their, their party. And uh, particularly within the, the strong progressive side, it seems to be being split between Warren and, 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 and Bernie. And, and from that perspective, I'm not sure that that little dust up between uh, Warren and Bernie helped anybody. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but look, I, I'll just, uh, I, I don't know whether Bernie said anything about a woman becoming president. I'll say all the polling that I've ever seen says that generally when you have a male candidate versus a woman candidate, uh, certainly in Ohio, the woman candidate has between three and five point advantage. I think Ohioans are willing to elect women. Uh, we have to have the right women and the right candidates. And uh, if you look at those races across the, the, the state, I can just tell you what, what we see. And that's why Republicans are recruiting high quality women uh, to run and, uh, and, and looking at those races. But uh, from that perspective, um, it, I always look to see whenever I hear these these platitudes and these great plans, how are you going to pay for it? Right. What are you going to do about it? And, and, and how is it really going to make a difference? Um, you know, I, the health care solutions that we keep hearing to me are unworkable. Uh, they're not going to make the system better. They're going to make it worse. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things we see is every time we expand government health care, uh, we tend to have more problems than we have solutions. Mm. And, and so that's something we continue to need to, to look at and talk about. Sometimes when I'm watching those debates, I am thankful that we live in a state where we do have to balance the budget. You know, you have to balance those books every single time. Let me do this. We'll get our panelists' thoughts on impeachment the signing of the articles, and the next step. I do have a veteran uh, public official here, three professors at the table who teach this every day, whether it's history, political science, criminal justice. Um, Auditor Faber, why don't you start us off here. What are your thoughts as we head into another week of history? This may be the first impeachment without a crime that, that we've seen. And, and, and from that perspective, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the Senate deals with it. My suspicion is it's going to be much the same way the Senate dealt with the uh, Bill Clinton impeachment. Uh, they're going to take uh, the positions from the parties and move forward and, and make their decision based on the position statements without witnesses. But th that's their call. They're going to do that. Uh, from the pictures you showed, interesting to me, you showed the somber procession. But before that, you had the yuck it up session when Nancy was signing. And if it's such a somber, uh, we hated to do this, why are you giving out pens to the people around when you sign the, the declaration. To me, that's something you do when you're excited about doing something, not doing something that, that is somber and, and you hated to do it. So I, I think it's a different contrast in perspective and what the images are. And, and I think those images are going to tell much more of the tale than the, than the staged walk across the, 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 the Capitol. To, to that point, though, she did have a very somber approach. She was wearing black even in the House chamber the day that, I mean, and she even called out some of her Democrats that day, and she said, listen, this is not... A, a celebratory uh, thing. Suzanne? Well, um, image is everything and it depends on picking and choosing. I would just say that the um, holding up of money for doing a favor is a problem mm. when a president asks for that and that we have had many times questions about the boundary in the separation of powers that the Constitution sets over what are those prerogatives. And this is serious, and it adds to also the um, reminders we get of true problems with telling the truth. Mm. We are not getting the truth from the White House. We have Donald Trump saying the Republicans would better protect um, pre, you know, prior health care problems. It's just not true. So 
Um, this kind of uh, situation and difficulty is, has been extremely problematic for our nation, and it will connect. Um, there's a new report, too, from the general administration. I forget one of the bureaucracies that said this was this was a, a, a violation from that the, the president accountability made. Office, yeah. Yes, the government accountability office. So we have that. Chanel? Well, anytime you have uh, obstruction and abuse of power, that definitely is a concern. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, it's important for all of us to see during the trial if there are going to be witnesses, if the witnesses are going to be able to speak. Um, but I, I was also looking at Justice uh, Roberts and his role in all of this. And I'm really interested to see how this plays out because I believe he really wants to take a step back, neutral mm -hmm. role, and just let, you know, the Senate work this thing out. But I don't think he's going to be able to get off that easily. Mm. I think he's going to have to intervene um, and really help to guide this. But we shall see, you know, mm -hmm. because it's all it's just the beginning. This is our third major conflict between Congress and the White House in the last 50 years. I'm, I'm fearful this is just going to become more of the pattern as we move forward. Really? That's not a statement in favor of the president or against the president, mm -hmm. but when this just sort of becomes the normal behavior between two branches of government, I'm not sure that's going to be good for the country. So Isn't then every election might lead to an impeachment, mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a precarious place to be. Isn't that interesting, too, that you brought the conversation back in an organic way to how you started it, and that is division, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. where we are right now. Wow. Um, uh, I've got to wrap it up. It's one of those weeks where I wish we had an hour. I wish we had two hours for a show like this because we did have a lot to cover this week. It's good to have all of you here. Thank Come you. back anytime. That's again Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. <laughs> This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Thank you for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. This week, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, along with the U.S. Surgeon General's Office, released a report on the importance of quitting smoking. It's the 34th Surgeon General's Report on Tobacco Use, but it's the first time in nearly three decades that the report focused solely on quitting smoking. I have on the line with me today the U.S. Surgeon General himself, Dr. Jerome Adams, as well as Beatrice, who is a former smoker that is part of the CDC's campaign in which former smokers give tips to current smokers on how to kick the habit. Dr. Adams, Beatrice, thank you both so much for joining me today. Oh, it's our pleasure. Appreciate you uh, giving us the opportunity. So, Dr. Adams, let's start with the report itself. Can you give us a little bit of background on this report and some of the key findings within? Well, thank you for having us. And uh, first off, I want people to know that 34 million Americans are still smoking and that's that's a problem because we know that smoking is the number one preventable cause of early death disease and disability in the united states uh, my new report details the science that we've accumulated over the last thirty years regarding what we know works to help people quit 
And as I understand it, this report is about tobacco use, not just nicotine use. Uh, was there any consideration of the role that e-cigarettes play in smoking? Well, there have been uh, several Surgeon General reports talking about the benefits of not initiating smoking. Uh, this report talks about the benefits of quitting smoking. And uh, in order to have that conversation, we absolutely had the over 150 experts who, uh, who helped compile and edit this report look at the data that's out there on e-cigarettes. Uh, they came to the conclusion that there is currently inadequate evidence to, uh, to infer that e-cigarettes help people quit smoking in general. Uh, that's not to discount individual accounts that we've, got, uh, we, that we've received from people about how they've used e-cigarettes to help them quit, but this is a diverse and rapidly changing landscape. We have thousands of products out there, and right now there, isn't, there just isn't enough evidence to, uh, to say uh, with, with the weight of the science that e-cigarettes help people quit smoking uh, in general. But we do know what, help, what, what does help people quit. FDA-approved quit medications, behavioral counseling, uh, policy interventions like uh, smoke-free laws and increasing the cost of tobacco. And so we're really trying to help folks understand they're an array of evidence-based tools, resources, and policies out there that when, enact, that when enacted help people quit. Once again, I have U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams on the line, as well as Beatrice, a former smoker who's featured in the CDC's Tips from Former Smokers campaign. Beatrice, uh, let's turn to you for a minute. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences both with smoking and then eventually with quitting smoking? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I, I started smoking at a pretty young age, and um, as I got older, my and I became I got married and had children. It started to affect my family. Um, my smoking was affecting my family, and my son, one of my boys, Nicholas, wrote me a letter asking me to quit smoking because um, he he knew it's bad for you. And uh, when I got that letter and I read it, I got pretty emotional, and I I realized it's time to quit. And I had tried several attempts to to quit, and um, I wasn't successful at every one. But the the last motivating factor was my son asking me to quit smoking, and so I. I sought help. I, I got nicotine replacement therapy, and also um, I saw my doctor, and I asked for help, and she, she prescribed something to help me with that, with quitting. I feel like quitting smoking is such an individual experience. Some things work for some people and not for others. Uh, did you have any contact with other people who were quitting smoking and the kinds of things that worked or didn't work for them? Um, I, I actually don't have anybody that I can compare my situation to. My brother, actually, he quit smoking, but he his situation was different. He did it cold turkey, and maybe, I mean, that's the only thing I can compare it to is my brother, but his was a different situation than mine. And I think everyone's situation is pretty unique, and they have to find what motivates them and, and stick to it and, and just seek help. And what I, would, what I would say to folks as the Surgeon General is um, uh, CDC's Tips from Former Smokers campaign. Uh, you can see stories and hear stories from an array of people who've, uh, who've quit smoking at cdc.gov slash tips. Uh, I think it's powerful. It's powerful to hear from old people, young people, uh, parents, um, folks who don't have kids, an array of individuals, um, some with disease, um, some with no disease who just want to be healthier uh, tell their stories about why they quit and how they quit because everyone's story is a little bit different. But this report is about uh, looking at all the science that's out there 
and putting each of these individuals in the best possible situation to quit. And obviously, the, those full resources are out there for people to look at. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the tips that are that are given in that report and some of the things that, uh, you know, maybe some of the interesting stories that were gleaned from putting it together? Absolutely. Well, number one, I would uh, tell people to go to smokefree.gov for more information about quitting smoking. Uh, every state also has a quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW that you can call into and speak to someone about quitting smoking. You can get counseling. You can also get referrals to uh, medications that will help you quit smoking. But some of the tips that we gleaned from the report and some of the stats that, that stuck out to me, there are certain groups who are still disproportionately affected by smoking. The LGBTQ community, American Indian, Alaska Native, uh, disproportionately affected. And this one here really stuck with me. 40% of the combustible cigarettes in this country are consumed by people with a mental illness or substance use disorder diagnosis, 40%. So we need to give those folks the tools that we know quit. And what, what do we know works? We know that there are seven FDA-approved medications and behavioral counseling that when used in concert, double the, 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 uh, the success rates for people who make a quit attempt. But uh, unfortunately, only about a third of people who try to quit are doing so with the aid of FDA-approved medications. Can we talk a little bit more about those groups? They seem to be marginalized groups or groups that are already marginalized in society. Can you shed any light on why they might be more likely to smoke or to keep smoking? Well, that's one of the things that we're continuing to dig in, but we know that there's a stigma attached to smoking and there's a stigma attached to certain subgroups. We know that in many cases, uh, folks chalk it up to, hey, they've got bigger problems, bigger fish to fry, and we don't want to take something away from them. But uh, the studies have shown consistently that people's physical health and mental health improves when they stop smoking. Uh, and that includes people with mental illnesses and substance use disorders. They're more successful in treatment if they actually quit smoking. These folks want to quit and they can quit, but we just need to get over this bias that we tend to have uh, in regards to whether or not we offer those services. And uh, another stat that, that stuck out to me, 60% of people who are smoking who see a doctor get advised to quit, which means that 40%, 40% of smokers who see a healthcare professional uh, are not advised to quit. So we need to make sure folks know which groups are most affected. We need to advise them to quit. We need to give them the tools uh, to help them quit. And then we need to pr provide an environment around them, um, smoke-free policies, a payment for, uh, uh, for, for FDA-approved medications that will give them the resources and tools that will help them be successful. And this might seem like an obvious question, but I think it's worth putting out there. What are the, the specific benefits of quitting smoking? Well, we detail that in the report. For the first time ever, uh, 12 different cancers um, your chance of, of developing those cancers is lessened if you quit. Uh, COPD and cardiovascular disease, uh, those, those are, are lessened if you quit. Uh, we also know that reproductive health, everything from fertility to erectile dysfunction is, is, uh, is improved if you actually quit smoking. So many benefits from a, uh, from a physical health point of view. But smoking costs our country also $300 billion every year, which is about $1,000 for every man, woman, and child. So quitting smoking isn't just good for our physical health. It's also good for our fiscal health. Uh, Dr. Adams, one more time, if you would uh, let folks know where they can find more resources to quit smoking. If you or a loved one want to quit smoking, 
Right now, you can pick up your phone and dial 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Or if you have a smartphone or access to the Internet, go to smokefree.gov. Two great resources with lots of tips that will help you on your journey to become smoke-free. Once again, I've been speaking with U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams talking about the smoking cessation report and Beatrice, a former smoker who's featured in the CDC's Tips from Former Smokers campaign. Thank you both for speaking with me today and for all you're doing to help folks kick the habit. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS-FM. Sports Radio, 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.